Hello and welcome to another episode of Right Brain Rounds. And today I have Dr. Brad Block with us. Um, he is an otolaryngologist in a private practice in New York. And I'm going to let him talk a little bit more about that um, as we get into the podcast, because I think it's very interesting to our listeners, especially if you're interested in starting or maintaining or working for a private practice. Um, and he also has his own podcast, which we'll talk about too during um, this episode called The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. And there's so much great advice in his podcast. So everybody take a break. Um get out there and subscribe to his podcast because I know a lot of our listeners have overlapping, you know, interests. So thank you so much, Dr. Block, for being with us today and welcome. Brad, please. I've been looking forward to this for a while. <laughs> thank, it's really an honor to be on the show and be invited. And, and thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So Brad, tell us all about what you do right now. Um, and I, I'm really very interested in hearing about how you're in a physician-led, physician-owned, multi-specialty practice. So I am a private practice otolaryngologist. Yes. Um, oh, some people call it otorhinolaryngology, ENT, ear, nose, and throat. That's it. Um, my practice is called ENT and Allergy Associates, and we are the biggest ENT practice in the country. We have ENTs and allergists. So we're not a multi-multi-specialty. We're like a a duo specialty practice okay. um, and uh, of ENTs and allergists, New York and New Jersey. We have 50 offices. We have 250 physicians. And the interesting thing is of those 250 physicians, about 170 are partners. And when I say partner, I mean partner, full equity partner. So when you join our practice, there is certainly sweat equity, um, but there's no buy-in. You have to assert, we, you know, once you decide to join us, we tell you this is what you need to do. And if you accomplish all of this, then you will become a full uh, full equity partner. You'll have just same as equity as me. You'll have the same equity as some of the founding partners. And actually you'll have more equity than some of the founding partners because some of them have retired. The guys that started the practice, they retired and they left. And the interesting thing is that when you retire, there's no buyout. You just retire. So there's no buy-in, there's no buy-out. You become a full equity partner uh, with all the voting rights and you know income that comes with, with being a, a partner. We're, we're physician run because we elect seven board members to run the show. Now they don't run the day-to-day, -day. we have a whole C-suite. And because we're 250 physicians, we've got collectively deep pockets to be able to hire a very, very capable C-suite who runs the practice. But they are, they serve at the, and I forgot the term, serve at the pleasure. Yes, they serve at the pleasure of the board of elected um, physicians. So there's nothing, that, those physicians see patients every day like me. They're not gonna do something that's gonna move the needle economically that's going to make their lives worse. They're not really, like, you know what? We're all going to work nights now. There's so many patients that want to be seen at night. We're all going to work weekends now because there's so many patients that want to be seen on the weekend. Yes, there are. And that would make us more money. But a lot of us like me, I have young kids. I want to be home with them on the weekends. So, you know, they're not going to do anything that's going to make their lives more difficult. And I, I love that the board is full of people that are working there who have been there, done that, understand 
all of the little intricacies that come along with being a physician and a manager and, you know, someone who is running a business, a, you know, a multimillion dollar practice. Um, so, you know, I think looking at that and looking at like maybe how COVID, you know, went down <laughs> and how um, different practices responded to that, um, how physician autonomy is achieved in practice, um, you know, looking at those things, you know, during the pandemic and moving forward, how, how do you feel that your experience during COVID may have differed from someone who is hired by a bigger entity that might not be physician led and, you know, the administration, administration, you know, might be looking kind of like at the bottom line rather than physician wellness and interests. So for COVID, there were a couple of things that the practice was paying attention to. One, we were paying attention to the fact that we knew that people that were going to be hired by us or considering being hired by us were watching. And so we needed to make sure that we were doing right by our employed physicians who were employed at the time. Um, the partners, um, the difference between being an employed physician and being um, a partner is we have skin in the game. And so we need to continue, even though we're not getting income because there are no patients coming in, we needed to um, continue to prop up the practice financially. And it turns out that our managers did an excellent job of, you know, thinning things out such that we didn't have this persistent, tremendous overhead until we were seeing patients again. So, um, you know, whereas a, uh, an employed physician, they're still going to get paid because it's in their contract to get paid. Um, we couldn't, we couldn't get paid because we're not making any money. Um, and we still have to be able to pay the bills. So they managed, you know, you, we were in New York, so you could put off paying the rent. Like there were ways to, to do it. And we had such sophisticated people running the show as they, they managed, they managed to do it. So, you know, there are two different lenses here. There's the one lens of, we know we're being watched by people that are considering joining the practice. So we need to do right by people, but, and at the same time, we bear more responsibility and more burden because it's, we own it. Um, whereas if you're an employed physician, you have a contract, you have to be paid, but the contract says you are going to be paid. Um, so two, two different uh, perspectives and my practice, I think did this extremely well. Like we came out, it was, it, you know, nobody was coming to an otolaryngologist during COVID where, you know, we're all up in your face, unless of course they had COVID and we, we, we weren't, we weren't seeing the, you know, we didn't want to see that because we couldn't do anything for you. Um, uh, and it's remarkable. I was actually on call for the hospital the week of, I think it was the last week of March or maybe the first week of April. And there was nothing. I mean, we all know, we all went through that COVID experience and I was in New York, right? I was in Long Island, it's not like Manhattan, but still nothing. There was no, no, I did not get called once for that week on call because it was all COVID all the time. So, you know, it was really, um, really remarkable, but yes, those, those were the two different perspectives of being a practice owner instead of a employed physician. Sure. And, you know, when you look at um, newer grads who are getting done with their fellowships, their residency programs, and they're looking around, um, you know, at different opportunities, um, 
there are so many opportunities that I feel like a lot of our newer grads don't know about or don't consider because they want to have that um, employed physician position and the you know, that sense of security that they feel that they might have from, um, I mean, I did it. I, I totally went and worked for a hospital right out of, um, fellowship. Um, but you know, that sense of security with like benefits and a regular salary and, um, not knowing that all the time that RVUs have to be met, you know, different, um, bonus structures have to be met, um, you know, different administrative tasks have to be met, um, you know, to keep that salary. But, what would you say to people who are just graduating, you know, as far as looking at their options for working, you know, as an attending? I think it's tough. I think there's, there's so many different options out there. I mean, for me, it's easy for me to say, oh yeah, private practice is so great because my practice went, I mean, when I joined, I think there were 130 of us now we're 250. So, you know, significantly bigger, but at the same time, like it was a big practice with a big infrastructure. And so there were, it's not like I put out a shingle. Yeah. I, I, I don't want anyone to think that I was bold enough to do that because <laughs> I wasn't. So I definitely can't speak to that option. Um, I, I mean, kudos to everyone that is able to do that and take out a line of credit from a bank to fund it all and take the risk while you're waiting for insurance to get back to you and be on different panels and pay the rent and hire staff. You know, I'm, I'm in this sweet spot where I didn't have to do all that. And yet I'm still one of many owners of, of the practice. Um, but I think you, you, what you need to think about, and this is something that you should think about often are values and purpose. Like, what is your purpose and what are your values? Recognizing that this is something that's going to change over time, right? Like, what do you, what is important to you and which of the different options out there brings that to you? Is just being able to put your head down and see your patients, is, is that what's important to you? Or is autonomy important to you? Is not having a boss, I mean, everyone has a boss, but you know what I mean, important to you? Do you want this like congenial relationship with your colleagues where you're going to be able to learn from them, right? To help you be a, a better clinician. Because when you're when you finish residency, those first couple of years out of residency are really defining. And also there's a, just a ton of learning that happens during those first couple of years. So, you know, who do you want around you and supporting you? Or you know what? Are you just bold enough to take it all on yourself and capable enough? to take it all on yourself. So there's, you know, this is all the stuff that you need to think about and you need to think about it. And it's not just money. I think it gets oversimplified by you're looking at call and you're looking at money. Both of those things are very important. <laughs> you don't want to be on call all the time, on busy call all the time. And you don't want to be, you want to be able to pay back your student loans and you know, pay your bills. So I'm not saying those things aren't important, but those things aren't at everything. And so I think just to take a, a wider angle view, I think of what you were, I'm not sure if this was the direction you wanted me to take it, but um, this is a little wider angle of just, you know, what are your values and what are your, what is your purpose? What's important to you and how do you want to be spending your time? Yeah. I mean, when you think about life in general and just planning like you know what what is your legacy in medicine you know I, I i often talk to people about that and you know 
core values definitely have a lot to do with that because if your core values don't align with, you know, a majority of what your, you know, institution that you work for, um, you know, stands for, then you might not, you know, be the greatest fit for that institution. And, um, you know, definitely I know, um, for me working for a hospital when I first finished fellowship was definitely the right, um, choice because I had, you know, I had one partner at the time, um, and I learned quite a bit from that seasoned professional, um, and, you know, just kind of set up some, you know, real algorithms of how I would practice that have lasted, you know, for many years, um, since that time. And then, you know, being, um, fearful of what would happen if I started my own practice, you know, financially, um, being a solo practitioner, um, you know, not always having someone readily available to bounce ideas off of, you know, when I came from a, a group of six people. So, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of those things are definitely, um, things that people should consider. So I totally appreciate that. And, you know, looking at the, um, type of, uh, practice that you work for, um, you know, the physicians that are on the board and, you know, just working with physicians who know that they have a little bit more autonomy, um, you know, in times where there's a medical crisis or, you know, working with your patients, do you feel like that autonomy is passed on to your patients? I don't totally understand what you what you mean by that in terms of the autonomy of the patients? I mean, they have to fit in the schedule. <laughs> they don't fit in the schedule. You know, some doctors have more flexibility than others, but I, I'm not sure if that's what you're, you're getting at. So if you feel like maybe you have more autonomy than someone who works for a big hospital organization, you work yeah. for a physician led um, organization. Do you feel like that autonomy is passed on to your patients or maybe you have more time to spend with them or you you know definitely have um different ways where you know you talk about efficiency and making patients feel like they're being heard and seen and, and have a great experience um you know and it's not dictated to you in, in that way so i so so i have more flexibility yeah. in how i'm treating the patients because of my autonomy and that pat that because that improves the patient experience. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. So, so, I mean, one thing that we don't do is, you know, we don't be like, okay, this patient needs 20 minutes and this patient only needs 15 minutes and this person, wow, they, every time they're here, they're here for a long time. So they need a half an hour. You know, we don't do anything like that in the practice. Um, there might be a doctor or two in the practice that are doing that. Um, but you know, I, because I can decide how many patients an hour I'm going to see. <laughs> so if I'm a, a, the type of doctor that sees, you know, patients less, if we'll say, we'll just say less efficiently. We won't say slower. We'll just say less efficiently. Then, you know, then they can see two or three patients an hour. And if we have someone who sees patients more efficiently, they can see five patients an hour if they're able to do it. The, the problem becomes if it's a doctor who can only see two or three patients an hour and they schedule five patients an hour. And then that's where we actually might even need to take away some of their autonomy because then they're, that spills over, that makes the staff more stressed out patients have a worse experience, the waiting room fills up. And so, yes, you are in a private practice, but you don't have complete autonomy. You, you, are, you are not working in a vacuum. You're working with other people. And so we need to make sure that that is being um, managed 
appropriately. So it's, yeah, they don't have complete autonomy because you need to keep in mind patient experience, staff experience, and the other physician's experience. Um, but it does allow me the flexibility to practice the way I want to practice. That being said, you don't have complete autonomy to practice the way you want to practice because we need to make sure that you're doing things correctly and safely. Now, there is a huge gray zone in medicine in what is correct and what is safe, but you know we need to make sure that people aren't doing unnecessary procedures and billing inappropriately and things like that. And so we have checks and balances in the practice to prevent things like that from happening. Because we're a big practice, we have a big target on us for insurance companies to go, you know, to to try and audit us and try and claw back money if they feel like we're not billing and coding appropriately. Um, so we do have a lot of, you know, it's not complete autonomy for the physician. However, Back to your question, does the autonomy that we do have pass on to a better patient experience? Absolutely. I'm a happier person. I'm a better doctor because I have this autonomy, because I'm able to have the flexibility to leave a little early if I need to go to my kids' swim competition or stay a little later because I know they're going to be in camp late tonight. So I'm able to you know, block off some more spots and add some more spots as long as my staff's okay with it to be able to see a few more patients that night. So, you know, that flexibility does translate, I think, into, into better patient care. And, you know, when you look at um, different things that you can do in your personal life to enhance your professional life, um, you know, as far as like creatively finding ways that you might prevent burnout um, in a career, I always love to talk with people about this. Um, music is my outlet. <laughs> and, you know, what What would you tell people that um, you do or, you know, kind of like a, a little bit of advice for our other colleagues out there who might be dealing with burnout or how to prevent it early in their career? Um, I know you mentioned um, having something else. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah, so my my CEO is actually going to be speaking at the American Academy of Otolaryngology about or our former CEO about um, you know career advice for for younger physicians, and he he asked me. So what I wrote about is 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 having this this something else because what I'm finding for myself, you know, I'm 12 years out of residency, and you know, so so are my friends, and what we're finding is that it's not as stimulating as it once was. It's not as fulfilling as it once was. It's gotten kind of monotonous. I still enjoy seeing my patients, uh, mostly, um, but but you know when you see the same diagnoses over and over, and you're giving the same spiels, to use a Yiddish word, over and over, you know it it does become less stimulating. Hedonic adaptation sets in. You know it's not exciting anymore. And so my advice was have something that allows you to continue making it exciting and interesting. And for me, that's my podcast. And I'll, so I'll talk more about that in a little bit, but it could be education, it could be teaching medical students and residents and having them seeing things through their eyes so that you can, you know, keep it, help to keep it fresh. Some entrepreneurial pursuit, you could do expert witness work, um, you know, advancing the profession in some way. You can be working on advocacy for your profession or for your patients. There's a lot out there. I don't want to give all the examples that come into my brain, but there's 
there's a lot out there. And so if you have something that's interesting, that's within medicine, I think that is worth that's that uses your expertise as a physician. I think it's worthwhile to pursue that because you can then reflect that back onto the practice of medicine to make that practice less uh, monotonous. It might be pushing the limits of what can be done in your specialty. Like in otolaryngology, there are people doing robotic surgery of the throat. Like that's amazing. So those people are pushing the limits. They're going to find their day much more stimulating. Why? Because they're, you know, what else can I do to push the envelope to help patients more? The other thing that's happening in, in those arenas, social interaction. You're interacting with colleagues more and, you know, coming up with ideas and, and just that social interaction. I think, you know, if we, you mentioned COVID before, I think one of the big problems with COVID and mental health was the social isolation. Yes, there was health uncertainty, there was economic uncertainty, but I think human beings are social animals. And when we were cut off from each other, and I, I'm, I'm not against the lockdowns, they served a purpose, um, but it did have a, a, an, an effect. And, and some of that was this lack of social interaction, which led to depression, anxiety, you know, de deterioration to some degree of mental health. Um, so we're social animals. So making sure that you're pursuing those professional social interactions in whatever way. And so that's going to help you, though this is going to help to prevent burnout. Meanwhile, you're still seeing the same patients for the same problems over and over, but it helps that to be more stimulating. And what I have is I have my podcast. You know, my podcast is called the, if I might plug it now, it's called the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, um, where I, as the tagline is, everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. So if I have something that I'm wondering about, I get to call experts and say, hey, do you want to be on my show? And they might ignore my email. So then I reach out to another expert and ask them, and then until finally I get someone to be on the show. And I've done that plenty of times, because it's like 260 or 270 episodes, um, where we just talk about all the things that I think we should be learning that we're typically not taught. Like, so a lot of the stuff that I cover on my podcast is interesting, you know, questions that I have about how to be a better physician. And that's in the exam room, that's out of the exam room, that's really anything that I, any question that I wanna have answered. Um, and the reason that it helps me with burnout clinically is, or with burnout rather is because one, it's a creative outlet. And so any any creative outlet I think is gonna help with with burnout. But for me specifically, it keeps me stimulated in the exam room because I'll have experts on the show that help me with doctor-patient interaction. So I'll have them on the show, and then the next day, I'll be able to incorporate what I've learned into the interaction. So the way that my podcast has helped me and has, has helped me with burnout is, you know, one of the ways that I was struggling was just the monotony of of the practice. I'm an ear, nose, and throat doctor. I only see things in the ear, nose, and throat, right? So I end up seeing the same problems over and over. And, you know, when we're first starting in our practice, everything is fresh and exciting and interesting. But, you know, we develop these heuristics, these ways of thinking about the problems such that we can think through these problems much faster because our brain develops these shortcuts and we're able to figure out what the diagnosis is and what the treatment plan is much faster when we're a couple of years into our career. And so that, you know, eventually that becomes less stimulating. And so the way the podcast has helped me find it more stimulating is I've, I've had experts on the show that can help me with the doctor patient interaction, help me connect better with the patients, help me move that efficiently and 
effectively such that the patient leaves with, you know, having had a fulfilling visit. And so when I learn something new on the podcast, I can incorporate it into the visit, which then helps that visit be more stimulating and interesting for me. And also clearly better for the patient because that's the whole goal of, of, of what I'm learning. Now, this isn't the only thing that I learned on the pod, that we talk about on the podcast. We talk about you know, the tagline is everything that we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. So the other benefit for burnout is it's just a creative outlet for me because I cover so many different topics. And I know it sounds like I'm just talking about how great my podcast is, but I really, you know, it's a passion of mine. You're, you, you know, if you were, you know, you're into music when you're talking about music, you're just as passionate. So, um, you know, so I talk about all these different topics and it's all stuff that I'm interested in. And so, you know, whether it's investing in real estate or being a better parent or just managing your finances or being an advocate for your profession or, you know, all these different topics um, that I'm interested in. And so that creative outlet is just another way. So, you know, between helping me find the visits more stimulating uh, create a better experience for my patients and just the creative outlet in general. This particular, my podcast ha has really helped me with, with burnout. I mean, if we're on the topic of burnout, I can also talk about the other ways in which I've struggled with burnout. And that is, um, you know, therapy has helped me with my struggles with burnout. It's helped me with some of the, the ways of thinking. Um, and I forgot what it's called specifically, but I had some ways of thinking that were not healthy and not necessarily correct. And I would think like, oh, gloom and doom about what was going to be happening in the future. And they, and it wasn't healthy. And so, you know, therapy is also something that, that has really helped me with, uh, with burnout as well. That's awesome to, you know, put that out there too, because I, I feel like a lot of people in our field are, you know, a little bit resistant to admit that maybe there could be a problem that might be solved by therapy. And then just, you know, kind of the overarching um, culture of medicine is to not ask for help. I mean, it seems like that is, you know, something that um, I tend to be concerned about with my colleagues. Um, and then you also brought up, you know, podcasting kind of as an, a creative outlet. And I think I started this podcast during the pandemic. And so it made me feel like, you know, that social connection that we didn't have. Um, I was meeting people on LinkedIn and, you know, other virtual platforms and talking to them, you know, uh, virtually and, you know, inviting them to the podcast. And really it, it was a way to form those connections too. So like, you know, knowing that from you, um, that this is your creative outlet. I mean, I think maybe it could be helpful for people in that way to, you know, feel like they're interacting with, with people again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Again, that social interaction, like you said, that, that, you know, we were cut off from people and this is how you reestablish connections with, with the outside world. And it's, it's as much as some of us are you know, maybe we're introverts or maybe we've got some social anxiety. I know I, I used to have it much worse than I do now, but I still have it to some degree. It's even though we have those things that tell us that we don't like people, we're social animals and we do need, we do need other, other people. Um, and so any a, a creative outlet that can invite, involve other people, I think was, uh, is also helpful. Yes, I know. Um, you know, even during the pandemic, um, you know, I could play my flute by myself, but the other groups that I was a part of that couldn't meet any longer, 
um, we did some virtual work where we all recorded kind of our own thing and we had a, like a metronome so we could do it all at the same time. And then our um, director kind of put everybody together and we had, you know, a little performance and it was just really awesome. To that sounds to awesome. That sounds amazing. That. <laughs> um, you and, you, know, you just, had mentioned what, yeah, what I said about the therapy, when I said about yeah. the therapy and you said, yes. you know, well, doctors, we tend to be stoic and, yes. and just like suck it up and deal with it. The way that I rationalized it in my head and actually just, it, it just occurred to me now that this, these were the mental gymnastics that I took well, that I wanted to be. You know, my my temper was a lot shorter uh, than it than it should have been than they than what they deserved. So the reason that I went into therapy was because not because I thought I needed help for me, but to be the best dad that I could be to my kids. So it wasn't even like yeah, I, my thinking was like no, I'm fine. I can suck it up and be fine and push through and be fine. And I could have, but I wouldn't have been the dad that they deserve. And so that's why I, I did it. And those, those realize that those were the mistakes that I did in order to, to get into it was, uh, you know, like, and I think that, um, you know, when you look at it as far as like in our careers, um, a lot of times we're doing things for other people before us um, constantly, you know, like we're, we're putting our patient care ahead of our own in, in some ways and, um, you know, to really sacrifice too for, for your family. I mean, that really just says a lot about you, you know, as an awesome person, you know, to, um, take that step to get the help that you need, um, to be that better dad that you, you know, striving to be. And so that's definitely amazing. And, you know, might form, you know, platform for help for other people, you know, hearing your story. I hope so. I hope so. Are there any other things that, um, you would suggest to, our colleagues that um, might be helpful to them in, you know, not becoming bored in their career, you know, once they hit, you know, a certain time in their career. I, mean, I know for me, you know, you say a lot of things that are true for my career. I'm also 12 years out from fellowship and, um, you know, talking and giving the same diagnoses day after day. I mean, the, it's time for something new, you know, something to kind of, um, you know, like you talked about advocacy, you talked about, you know, finding your creative outlets and, um, you know, the thing that you can have in your toolkit to prevent burnout in a stagnant career, like any, anything else you can think of. No, okay. <laughs> I'm still figuring it out. You know, I'm, I, I think I make it sound like I'm, I'm doing so well because I've got all these, you know, the, things going on but the the answer is no mm -hmm. no I, it's not it's not as stimulating as it once was it's not as fulfilling that it once was i mean i should be grateful that i have a, a steady paycheck and i get to do something that makes a difference and i am but you know it just seemed like the people that trained me were that came before me were 
I don't know. Maybe they hid it better. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe they did have this going on in their head and, and I just didn't know about it, but no, I'm still, I'm still, I'm still struggling with it. And I think it is helpful to know that other people out there are struggling with the, this like mid-career slump. Um, I don't have the answers. It's definitely happening. It's happening to me. It's happening to a lot of my friends and colleagues. Um, we still enjoy it. We still enjoy medicine. But then there's this but, this caveat that that comes in. And, you know, we have to do whatever we can to continue. Um, you don't have to continue seeing patients, though. I mean, you have to do what's right for you. You have to do what's right for you. I mean, right now for me and my family, yes, I need to continue doing this because yes. because because the income. And yes, if I didn't have, to, I don't know what I would do if I didn't have a job. Um, but I don't, I I don't have all the answers. I'm sorry. That's okay, and we're we're not looking for all the answers from you. So, <laughs> but it it is so nice to know, you know what what it is that you do, and um, the type of organization that you work for and how you promote different ways to keep that um, newness in a career. And, you know, it's CME for, for physicians in a different way, you know, that podcast that you have um, to kind of look at these different experts as they come in to say, all right, you know, this is how you talk to a patient. You know, I, I feel like um, in my practice, I, I really kind of focused on trauma-based care, uh, trauma-informed care because, you know, a lot of bad things happen in pregnancy, um, in my field, in, in, you know, my patients. And so, um, you know, when it's not like quite didactic, like, you know, this is how you diagnose preeclampsia. I mean, this is how you, um, interact with a patient who's had really traumatic, um, pregnancies and is currently pregnant again, you know, um, things, like you said, that we didn't learn in, in medical school. And, um, so, you know, I think, um, but it's so critical, right? Like that interaction, that interaction that we're having with your patient, that interaction they might carry with them for the rest of their lives. Like you're going to be able to connect with that patient and, and, and touch that patient's soul in, in ways, if you're cognizant about the importance and the gravity and how to best go about that interaction. So if you, treat that patient with with trauma a trauma informed perspective they're going to have such a better experience with you than they otherwise would and you know it could set the tone for the rest of their pregnancy like this is this i love it i love like that's the stuff we should be we should be talking about because you know how to diagnose preeclampsia but you know that stuff those interactions they're hard but there's ways to do them and when you do them well it is so much more fulfilling and so invigorating Yes. And then, you know, I'm sure you do a lot of this in, in your practice too, but like breaking bad news, you know, giving maybe even terminal diagnoses or, um, you know, diagnoses of cancer or, you know, talking about the long road to what is going to start happening if you're treating a condition, um, which may inc- include like, you know, chemotherapy or, um, radiation, you know, I'm, I'm sure, um, you know, quality of life, you know, these are all things that, um, you know, I, I even admit to my patients sometimes I know that this is probably the first or second time I've met you. And 
we're getting ready to have a really impactful conversation. And I understand that the things I'm going to say to you right now that you'll probably carry with you for a lifetime. So please feel free to ask questions. Please feel free to direct me in any way that I can to help you because that's what I'm here to do today. Yeah, this is that this is sometimes the hardest part of what we do, but mm -hmm. often the most fulfilling as well, if, if done well. Yeah. So I'm with you more time, less time spent on memorizing stuff. We're not going to use and more time spent on these scenarios and these, you know, we could be practicing these things. We could be practicing having these challenging, hard conversations. You know, they, the institutions spend so much money getting people to be actors and, you know, f uh, pretend patients. Um, well, what about practicing having these conversations? I, I think that's so, that's so important and so impactful. Definitely. Definitely. Now, um, Brad, can you tell us how our listeners can get in contact with you that you have any, um, websites or your, your podcast site or anything like that, um, where they can listen into all of your, um, expert, um, guests and your wonderful advice. So the, my website's physiciansguidetodoctoring.com, all one word. You can find me at Physicians Guide on Instagram, Twitter, threads. I'm probably going to phase out of Twitter and phase onto threads. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know about Musk versus Zuckerberg here. Who's, who's worse? One seems to be marginally worse than the other to be giving them all my data and attention. Um, and then, um, you know, I'm all the podcast platforms. So you can either go to my website where you can find links to the podcast platforms or just wherever you get your podcast, just like a physician's guide to doctoring and, uh, and, and you'll find it there and subscribe and leave us a nice review and leave a nice review for right brain rounds while you're there. Um, and, uh, thanks for having me. Awesome. It was so wonderful to speak with you and we'll have all this information in the show notes as well. If you want to get in contact with Dr. Block. And we'll look forward to talking to you again in the future. And um, I know that we met through social media, uh, doctors on social media, um, you know, another shout out to them um, for kind of bringing us together. And it's a wonderful network of doctors who are on social media. And if you ever want to check out their sites too, um, we can put those in the show notes. Yes, I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, Dr. Donna Coriel and all that she's doing over there. And actually, when I was first podcasting, a lot of the guests uh, were people that I found on there and through connections that I made there. So she's really doing great stuff for physicians, and as are you. And so thank you again for for having me. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Awesome, wonderful. It's so wonderful to be in an organization with all of you wonderful people. So <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs>